Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I'm your host, Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, Adam Pawatic. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Sean Hildebrand, who's the president of Urbanation. This is Sean's third time. And we're very excited to have Sean back. You know, not to diminish the value of the last two appearances, but we were in a fairly frothy market and it was kind of, I think the overall messaging, and correct me if you recall differently, was we need more supply. Just build more. Everything else is kind of moving fast. Now, of course, in the current market, I'll date stamp it, it's December 6th today. There is a little bit of a different environment today than the last couple of times we talked about it. Well, to pinpoint it, Aaron, June 2020 was the last time we spoke, which was an interesting point in the Toronto market. Couldn't be more polar opposite, perhaps. Yeah. So, Sean, we will put the link to the previous episode, so we'll save some time. If people want to get your your background, your history, they can go and listen to the old episodes. But why don't we just jump into what's happened since 2020 today at Urbanation, not the market, but at Urbanation. Sure. So, we've continued to expand our research into the market. We've begun covering on a regular basis the Ottawa rental market. So, there's a lot of rental projects planned for the Ottawa region. And we've begun surveying all of that new development activity and started a subscription service for the Ottawa market. So that's been uh, really interesting to expand into a new geography. And then more recently, we've partnered with a group called RentSync. So RentSync is a leading provider of digital marketing services for the rental housing industry across Canada. And in discussing the data that they have access to over the last years, we realized that they have a massive amount of information on thousands of rental buildings across the country. So Urbanation has been primarily focusing on tracking newer purpose-built rental product and specifically within the GTA and Ottawa more recently. And this database allows us to basically track every single or almost every single rental building across the country. So the older stock, the majority of, of rental buildings effectively in Canada, which brings us from about 100 new buildings that we're tracking in the region today to thousands of buildings across the GTA and the rest of the country. And it also, because there's a, almost a, a daily refresh of the data that they're managing, because they're effectively taking leads, listings from all of the rental managers and property owners across the country and pushing them out to various digital marketing channels. So they have the listings information and it's continually, continuously being refreshed as the market changes. So we're having access to this data and being able to create a data portal for our subscribers, for the industry. And it allows us to track the market much more broadly than we currently are and on a, on a much higher frequency. And I think basically this fills a massive uh, void in the market for rental market information. If you think about the fact that almost half of the country rents, at least in major centers, and really the biggest source of rental market information has always been CMHC, right? Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, who releases their annual rental market survey results, usually early in the new year, but based on October data. So it's once a year. It's pretty dated by the time that it well, comes and out. And that October data, that's collected over a period of time. It's not like those are just October month rents that are released. So, so it could so, be 15 months so, yeah, so we have, yeah. Of course, as largest CMHC lender in the country, we're constantly having this kind of conversation yeah. about the most accurate current rents that, that CMHC uses. And they don't necessarily reflect market rents, right? They're collecting rent rolls. So they could be including tenants that have been living in the unit for 15 years on rent control and are paying 20 or 30% below current market value. So the rents that they're reporting aren't usually reflective of current market rents. So what we're tracking is actual market rents, turnover in the marketplace, the unregulated market. Asking rents, if you will. Asking rents, yeah. 
And this is, I think, revolutionary for tracking what's actually happening in the rental market because um, not only we have the same sort of breadth and, and reach as the CMHC uh, survey, but we're able to do it on a monthly basis. So updating it continuously and at a higher level of granularity, right? The CMHC data is very, very aggregated. It's in a lot of cases, the lower geography you go, the more suppression there is in the data as well. We're basically telling you this building, this is their average rent. This is how you break it down you know, by unit size, by unit type. This is the trend across time, the availability and vacancy. So it's a massively powerful tool that I think the industry is going to be very receptive to. So initially, we're going to roll this out for the GTA. Work's already well underway. It's going to roll out uh, in the new year. And then from there, we'll be expanding. You've got a subscriber from First National, by the way. (laughs) I'm sure we're on the waiting list. Yeah. No, we're very excited. And and part of this partnership has allowed Urban Nation to take over uh, reporting of rentals.ca reports. I don't know if you guys have seen those reports Mm. that come out monthly, but they're very widely read. So RentSync owns the rentals.ca network of of internet listing websites. I think there's six or so across the country. The biggest internet uh, listing websites for rentals in Canada. So we have access to that data as well, on top of the RentSync data that comes directly from property managers and building owners. So it's been interesting to us just to jump into these these new markets and start trying to track trends and and analyze uh, different market conditions outside of what we normally do in the GTA. Because you were always, have historically been GTA focused for Urban Nations, I don't want to call it core business, but just historic operation. Is the intention to grow it nationwide also with in in sort of lockstep with the RentSync sort of absorption? Exactly. This is sort of an avenue for us to begin to expand outside of the GTA. We're continuously asked by our subscribers, when are you going to move into Montreal or, or Vancouver or Calgary and Edmonton? And, you know, we've been doing ad hoc work in these markets for some time. We often get commissioned to do market studies. So we'll go out and gather data sort of as needed. But we haven't been regularly tracking any of these markets outside of the GTA. So this, it's a very big endeavor to go out and and is it just because the data is so different depending on the jurisdiction and the sources are inconsistent and you basically have to recreate the wheel everywhere you go? Yeah, and if you don't have that massive database to have access to, you need boots on the ground in all of these markets, really, to truly understand what's happening. And we're a very small company. It's a big investment, a big decision. We've been busy enough here in Toronto, as you can imagine, for the past 30, 40 years that uh, we didn't really need to move out into these markets, even though the demand for us to do so is, has always sort of been there. And we figured this is a good first opportunity to start tracking these markets. And then we'll see what, what comes from there. You know, we are a, a company that started tracking the high-rise market through new condominiums, which in the early 80s was really new form of housing development. And tracking the rental market is only something that we've been doing relatively recently over the last 10 to 15 years. So recognizing that it's a huge growth opportunity in this marketplace for new development, kind of Continuing along with that and, and expanding it further into new geographies is, a, is sort of a natural next step for us. Well, it's got to be a bit of a, a golden era for you then that you've got increased access to data, growth in markets, and everybody's really focused on housing in general right now. I, I know I've seen your name pop up in a number of media publications much larger than this podcast, which is a good whoa, sign. Whoa, People whoa, are interested. Come on. <laughs> Don't put us down. <laughs> so let's jump into it then. I mean, you've now got a wider pipeline of data coming in. You're tracking everything in more more current time, which of course becomes more valuable as markets shift uh, more rapidly. The big trends, let's start with condos because Toronto is, of course, primarily, sadly for us, a primarily condo market. Yeah, the condo market, at least with the new development market, has become pretty quiet recently in terms of pre-sale activity. In the third quarter, we saw sales activity drop nearly 80% year over year. That's in condos? That's all single-family? N- no, no, new, new, new condominiums, okay, specifically new construction condo and pre-sales, yeah. like units I would sell prior to construction. So the volumes were down a lot. And this was really reflecting the fact that there wasn't a lot of new projects that came to market. Developers really held back on launching new projects. 
during the summer, and, and rightfully so, right? There was a lot of hesitancy amongst buyers. Consumer confidence was dropping and a lot of uncertainty regarding the market outlook given the shock to interest rates. And developers, if they weren't feeling confident in, in absorption in the sale, sale price in the current market, given how high construction costs are and development charges, as everyone knows, the margins there, there's not a lot of wiggle room. So they, they decided to hold back. And when the slowdown started, we were expecting that based on conversations we were having within the industry that we could see about 10,000 units that were supposed to launch for pre-sale this year held back. That was one of the sort of reasons why we gained so many uh, headlines was that uh, I think there was a bit of misconception there in, in the media that 10,000 units got canceled. Well, they didn't necessarily get canceled. They just didn't come to market yet. They could potentially be delayed. Some of them could eventually be converted to rental or they could launch at some point next they year. They wouldn't house Canadians for three or four years down the road anyway. No, and it looks like we're still on track for that. We, we had um, you know, a few thousand launches in the fall, but things have gotten quiet again. And uh, I think most developers are just sort of taking a wait and see approach, which is very similar to what most buyers are doing at this point as well. So yeah, I mean, we'll probably end up with 10,000 fewer pre-sale launches for condos this year. But we'll still have a pretty decent year. About 25,000 new condos will launch based on the strength that we have. What's that compared to the last five-year trend? It's basically on on average, yeah. But it's more concerning about what that trend is into the new year and and how 2023 shapes up. Like, will this slow down and and pre-sale launches continue? And it's concerning because you can see how this several years down the line is going to eventually slow housing deliveries. There's usually about a five-year lag between pre-sale activity and actual housing completions for new condos. So pre-sales that aren't happening today will result in fewer deliveries, fewer completions five years down the line. And if you think about the fact that this is happening at the same time as rental construction starts have stalled as well. So we've been tracking rental construction very closely. We classify a housing construction start earlier than CMHC does. So we can track these trends a little earlier than shows up in their data. As soon as uh, it shovels in the ground, we count it as a start, whereas they'll wait till actual foundation is poured. So our data is usually a leading indicator for what will happen in the, in the CMHC construction data. And our data has been showing over the last two quarters basically no new rental construction starts. Meaning no, no shovels in ground. I would say maybe two projects have started. In the last, uh, and that's unfortunate because we were seeing a lot of momentum. I think there were at six or seven thousand starts in um, in twenty twenty one. It's not nearly enough rental six supply. or seven thousand units. Yeah, okay. yeah. We wish it was six or seven. I was going to say, hold on, let's, <laughs> am I missing something? No, and, and that's not nearly enough supply. But we were on the right trajectory, right? We probably need you know ten fifteen thousand starts a year uh, on top of the condos just in order to satisfy population growth. But yeah, year to date, we're down like seventy percent in terms of starts, which is. Um, it's concerning to me because it's happening at the same time as, as a slowdown in pre-sale launches. And then if you look a few years down the line, what's going to happen to immigration? These things are going to be aligning at the same time. Fewer deliveries at the same time as you're welcoming 500,000 Canadians, new Canadians to the country. One third of those end up in the GTA. There's going to be a pretty s- strong mismatch here between um, demographic requirements for housing and, and you know the number of new units that we're ultimately delivering. A bit of a tangent on the condo market. I've been reading on Twitter and I shouldn't spend time there because it's a very negative place. But the assignment market, specifically a secondary assignment market for condos, being an absolute bloodbath. Do you have any visibility on, on that market? The assignment market fascinates me to no end. And it's mostly because there isn't any data. And, and it's kind of a bit of a black box. And I've been trying to figure it out for years, how to collect this information. At one point, there was a website that some brokers had, had launched to try to track assignment sales. And I think there's a new one that's popped up. But there's no universal data portal for assignment listings. They kind of happen behind the scenes. But it's always sort of been an industry rule of thumb but that about 10% of a, of a project's units will get assigned prior to closing. 
And that kind of lined up with the data that we were seeing because our general estimate for investor purchases has always been around 60%. So 60% of a condo's units would sell to an investor pre-sale. When you look at the number of units that end up in the rental market out of those new buildings, it's about 50%. So that extra 10% would normally get flipped at some point. So I, I always sort of agreed with that number. It seemed, it seemed fairly realistic. And now you're hearing reports of assignments having increased by about 50%, right? So you, you would expect that share to rise, you know, 15%, up, up to 15% of the market or so. So I think the issue here is, is not only the rise in the percentage of, of units that are being assigned, but the sheer volume of units that are getting ready for occupancy right now. And I think that's sort of creating a bit of a perfect storm for the assignment market because right now we have 9,000 new condos that are in the occupancy stage. We have another... 21,000 or so that are expected to reach occupancy in the first half of 2023. So potentially you have about 30,000 units sitting there that are your denominator, so to speak, for the potential assignment market. If you apply that 15%, you're at a number of units that's almost equivalent to the current size of the number of active resale listings out there on MLS. So you could have a shadow market within the assignment market that's almost the same size as the resale market for listings. To what extent that actually impacts the broader market and impacts broader pricing is something that I'm, I'm really sort of interested in analyzing because it's not clear to me that the average buyer sees an assignment listing and knows about assignment listings and it actually influences their decision to purchase or, or what their listing price would be. So to the extent that the assignment market has grown, I'm sure that's, that is the case, but to what extent does it sort of operate in isolation? And to what extent does it sort of spread itself to the broader market and impact in prices to a greater degree? We'll, we'll get back to construction in the rental market, but let's pull on the strings some more. Because, I mean, you're talking about that 50% growth in assignments. And we're kind of really still fairly early in the impact of just sort of the economic realities of today, meaning, effectively meaning just higher interest rates. I would guess that the increase in assignments is, is going to continue over time. Really because, I'm, and this is the question, is the driving force of those assignments just investors looking to get out, looking to move around their, their investments? Or is it really just distressed buyers that all of a sudden having to realize on a transaction and just now can't qualify because the mortgage rate they were penciling in was 2%. Now it's 65 or 5.5%. And that's driving a lot of these assignments where people are kind of walking away from a pre-construction that they thought they could afford three years ago? Yeah, I think it's probably both. Like depending on when you bought the presale, you could still likely be ahead. Like if you, like most units that are sold presale to investors are sold right at launch, right? So there's a pretty big window of time between presale and closing. So in that five-year span between when uh, a unit was presold and when it's coming off for occupancy now, generally speaking, the appreciation has been about 40%, right? So there's still some pretty big buffer room there for, yeah, for people are looking to assess. We theorize around here that there's just going to be this, Adam called it a bloodbath, but literally just developers looking to close, to offload the units, and there's just being a whole whack of purchasers just unable and, having, and walking away from deposits and just a whole mess of developer purchaser negotiations trying to get that units off the developer's balance sheet. Yeah, I think, and it's starting to happen. I think you're seeing more of those conversations occur. But does it, I mean, it doesn't sound like it's happening at any great pace. I think it's still because of the fact that the units that are coming to completion today or coming up for occupancy, in most cases, came to market as pre-sales back in 2017 at much lower prices than, than current prices. So, so they, I think they pencil out. Well, some invest, Well, I mean, when you sell an assignment, you have to sell below market. That's the reality. It's usually about 10 to 15% below what you would normally sell for as a resale. Plus your transaction costs. There's, you know, if you're selling in today's market, depending on when you bought, you probably aren't really making any money. You may be netting out even if you're lucky. 
Some investors who may have bought a little bit later in 2019, 2020, 2021, they're for sure going to accept the loss if they're looking to sell an assignment today. And some of them have to because they didn't factor in that interest rates would be as high as they are. But like I said, it, it doesn't seem to be affecting the broader resale market yet. In fact, if you looked at condos in the context of the broader GTA housing market, condos have actually held up best in terms of value. So comparing peak prices in February, March versus where condo prices are today, they're down by about 10% versus a single family home in some areas of the GTA have declined by 30%. So condos didn't see that same sort of volatility, same sort of run up. But nonetheless, there still is some financial hardships, definitely, that some investors who were factoring in 2% interest rates and perhaps rents that are much higher than where they are right now are looking to get out. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they're walking away from deposits. Like 20%, 15% deposit is a lot of money to be walking away from. And I'm sure the developer would take that unit back and try to resell it or hold it themselves as a rental unit. So I don't think there's a lot of people exiting their, their units. They're probably just testing the waters in a lot of cases. They're, they're seeing the unit come up for occupancy. They're saying, if I can get this price, I'm going to sell it. If not, I may close on it. I may hold on to it as a rental. And I think one of the encouraging things is that the rental market has offered a very strong outlet for investors in today's market. Rents have risen 20% from where they were at this time last year. They're 10 to 15% higher than where they were pre-pandemic. And they continue to see month-over-month growth. Even though we're at record highs for rents, they continue to, to sort of move up. So that's offset some of the difficulties with higher mortgage rates and um, higher carrying costs associated with where prices are. Before I move on from condo, one new twist to the plot I've seen is uh, developer financing is now out there. For the very, very large developers, they'll just carry a mortgage at 4% just to keep uh, that sale viable. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, I mean, creative solutions. I don't know how much they want to carry this on their own balance sheet for too long or through credit facilities, but you know, at least they're out there making it work. We want to get into apartments, given that's probably the audience's larger uh, interest, or do you have any more notes, Aaron? I, yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay. I'm trying to think of nice, positive things to oh, you say. Want to a high note well, I don't, even, I don't know. Okay, so <laughs> one, of the, one of those 2,000 units that were sidelined, when do you think they're going to jump back in the market? The 10,000? Yeah. Well, some of them have come in. I think the first part of 2023 is going to be pretty quiet. I think once the broader resale market starts to improve, you'll start to see new sale activity improve as well. And that's usually the, the catalyst for it. Developers realize that the resale market is improving, the market is tightening, prices are stabilizing, sales are getting better. It's a good time to launch. But that said, I mean, I've been surprised. There's been some launches occurring in, in the last few months that have done pretty well and at prices that are at or very close to what they would have launched for in the early part of this year. Eight Elm, for instance, sold for nearly, and there was a press release to that effect, sold for nearly $1,800 a square foot. Downtown Toronto, Young Street property, but nonetheless, that's you know at least three or $400 a square foot higher than a comparable resale building. So the investors are still there. They're looking for prime marquee properties, small units, 100%. They're looking at and and selling prices. I was just going to say, there's one in my neighborhood on Queensway. I won't say the developer's name. I can't remember if I have or not, so I won't. But it's micro units. They're all sort of 300, 400 square feet. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really driving activity in today's market. It's the micro suites that are very well located. But Aaron doesn't even live downtown. That's the interesting part. Yeah, this is he's not. Out, this is, this is, this is Queens, but this is along that Queensway corridor that they've allowed for density. But they have they they the, the center opened like six months ago, maybe four months ago. I don't know what the sales are. It's the Marlin Springs. I'll say it. I don't think they care. It's, probably, it's, it's free publicity. <laughs> it's the Marlin Springs development that's going on at Queensway in Royal York. Yeah, and, and and you're seeing shrinking unit sizes happening everywhere. Hamilton's done well with small units. Brampton, North Oakville, like these are markets that typically wouldn't be associated with with small units that are seeing a lot of traction from investors because they're looking for 
a certain price point in the marketplace. And yeah, most of the sales activity that we still see happening today is for small units. If it's not center ice downtown, it's outside of the city at or below $1,200 a square foot. It seems to kind of be the Yeah, I haven't spot. looked. But by the way, it's a great location. It's just, <laughs> it's just, just not downtown. downtown. Yeah. Maybe I meant great location by the definition. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on. Apartments. Sorry, before we go there, because they're connected. Uh, do you want to just talk about land? Or just kind of, are you seeing any depression in the land market right now? Is there any, any release, like any relief there? Or is that kind of, are the vendors just holding firm that they'll get their price eventually? Yeah, I think in most cases, we don't track the land market that closely, but certainly the transaction volumes are way down. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's clear. I think the stuff that is selling does sell for probably a little bit less than what it would have earlier. But there's just not as many bidders at the table, right? You're not seeing that one person come in 20% above everyone else like you were seeing earlier. So things are sitting and I think, you know, the landowners are sort of waiting for their price. And in some cases, if they, if they want to sell, they're, they're having to lower it to sure. not, not the same extent as prices for sure. Like land prices are much stickier than, than resale prices or new condo prices, but they've, they've, they've come down a bit. Apartments? Apartments. Let's jump into it. Try to be nice. Try to be gentle. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I mean, Sean, I know better than I would, but that's probably the better story of the two asset classes we're talking about today. Not if only two shovels have hit the ground in the last six months. Well, maybe it's good for valuations then, unless supply <laughs> coming on. You know, there's a few ways to, to examine that. We talked about rents a little bit, but and you are looking at other markets. Let's put Toronto in the context of uh, a national view of how pronounced our rental rates increases. So Toronto has been growing year over year at around just above 20%. I think the national average for November was about 12%. So we're almost double. Can you put that into average. context? Like what's that historically? Are those some of the most historically hard, highest yeah. rental increases? They're the highest rental increases that I've seen. Now, part of that is somewhat related to the dip that we saw in 2021. Like there's, there's, there's some recovery element to it. Students weren't here you know, all the other forces that were impacting rents at the time have come back. Yeah, and not much demand for downtown at the time, right? In 2021, a lot of people were moving out of the city into suburbs and working from home and that sort of thing. I've heard, well, he said on, this is a precursor, at some point in the future, our Michael Cooper interview will be released. I think this is going to go out first. So I'll say that. Stay tuned for the future Michael Cooper episode. During that interview, though, he did talk about this rent because, of course, Dream is getting into apartments in a, in a big way. His position was that rents, if you just kind of did a trend over sort of 10 years, where rents are today would be on that same trend line if you just ignore sort of 2020, 2021 dip. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. So when you that. say they're up 10, 15, 20%, that's kind of misleading. Not that you're misleading, but it, you know, <laughs> the, the trend is misleading because it doesn't take into account that that's still on the same trend line avoiding COVID or pretending COVID never occurred. That's not a very snazzy headline though to put in the paper. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, if it's true, at least it's, it, it's an easier concept to absorb as an industry, as an individual that it's not like rents are just going out, out of control. They just, they're just on the same trend line as they were before. They're, actually, if you looked at it over the last three years, so compared rents today versus the where they were at the previous peak in the third quarter of 2019, they're up about, by about 12%. So they're actually below trend. The long-term trend line average was around 5% a year. So there's your headline. Rent's down. Rent's down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Still, still in recovery mode to some degree. Yeah. But you know what? The growth that we're seeing right now, a lot of it occurred during the summer. There was an explosion in rents from around April to May until I would say September of this year. And a lot of it was driven by foreign students. And this was happening in a lot of major centers around Canada. So Tons of foreign students coming back into, into the cities, signing leases in advance of fall classes. 
And there's basically no rental supply for students anywhere. So they're coming in and bidding up the market extremely high. There's been some alleviation from that in the last uh, number of weeks. Some of it's seasonal. Some of it was just the market getting a little bit too ahead of itself. But, you know, the combination of students coming back in and just as importantly, a lot of would-be first-time buyers being priced out of the market. And when you have a higher number of higher income earning renters in the market, which is basically what's happening, people aren't buying homes. They could afford to buy a home if interest rates were a little bit lower. They're looking to make a move within some market. And so they're paying a higher price for a rental. And it's actually pretty interesting to see that when we look at the census data that has recently come out, it's shown that almost all of the net growth in renter households over the last five to 10 years in Toronto has been amongst those that are earning over $100,000 a year. So by definition, the rents that are in today's market, if you look at the average condo rents, about $2,800 a month, that's less than 30% of that income. So, so they're affordable. They are the de facto new, you know, affordable housing supply. It's new rentals. Controversial statement, <laughs> but uh, we, will, we will publish it. <laughs> but, but it is stunning. I mean, you know, we had the luxury to be able to tour, you know, brand new builds here in Toronto that are achieving this top of market pricing. And the entire time you're running the back of your head, who can afford it? Who can afford it? Who can afford it? Rents that are into 450 per square foot, you know, or more. But that is it. Just the rental profile is shifting. I mean, not to rehash this word for the millionth time in this podcast, but the Manhattanization of Toronto that will be part of it, that the demographic is shifting in a significant way. Yeah. Well, maybe the context is important. Out of the renter market, what proportion are foreign students or students at large? What proportion are temporary renters just waiting for the housing market to allow them to purchase a home? And then what percentage are just renters that will for the longest time be renters? Can you carve that up in some general way? It's really hard to say. I mean, if you were to look at condo towers in the core that are close to the major universities, I would say, I don't know what the percentage is, but it'd be very large are students, students, post-secondary students a lot of foreign students as well. And this is kind of tied back to, if you look at foreign student enrollments at U of T and Toronto Metropolitan University and, and, and even York, they've exploded in recent years. And then the other big part is just young professionals, young professionals that are living in central areas or even not living in central areas that are choosing to rent more often than not. And this is coming through very clearly in, in the home ownership rate data, right? Home ownership rates in Toronto have declined consistently over the last 10 years. They're now basically back to where they were in the early 2000s. They've dropped that much. And mostly within that sort of typical first-time buyer age profile, which would be kind of in the late 20s into your, into your late 30s, these individuals, for the most part, are renting. And they may continue to rent for the majority of the next 10 to 20 years because of how difficult it is to get into the housing market. This is a, a challenging time, for sure, for first-time buyers. If you look at housing affordability, and the way that I look at housing affordability is by measuring the percentage of income required to service the average mortgage that's associated with buying the average-priced home. It's at its highest in, in the last generation, for sure. It's, it's higher than what it was in the early 1990s and the early 1980s when interest rates were, were in the double digits. So, you know, even though we're at whatever, 5 6% interest rates, when you convert that to an average resale price of $1.1 million, it creates the worst housing affordability conditions in the GTA that we've ever had. We're, we're moving into sociological areas, but, and, you know, this may be off topic, but what part of that increase and just the propensity of the new generations to rent is just because of the economics and the math that doesn't make sense. And partly just because maybe the cycle is broken that you don't, you're not growing up with this dream of just being a homeowner and that they're changing the way that they think about what their objective is in life, that renting is okay. Like our generation, I think it was just blasphemy. Of course, you're not going to rent. You're going to make a good living. You're going to go buy a house. You're going to get a picket fence. 
Is that changing? Do you think the way that the next generation is just thinking about home ownership, where they live, how they live? I think it's a good narrative, but I don't think it's actually what's happening. I think if you look at any sort of home buying intention survey that comes out, there's still a very, very high intention to purchase. It's just the ability to. I think most people who rent and have the financial means to do so would prefer to own. And I think that- like If you gave somebody randomly $200,000 or whatever, maybe it's 2 million, whatever the number is, you think they'd just take that money and go buy a house more so. often than not? I think so. Yeah. I think that's been the case in Toronto for a number of years. And um, the psychology over renting, I think is changing to some degree. I think, it, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was more stigmatized than it is today. And I think there's a level of comfort, I think, that comes with renting more now, given that a higher percentage of the population is having to rent almost by default, that some of that is fading away to a degree. But it, it takes time, right? It takes a long time. And having the supply built that sort of satisfies that level of demand, I think, is sort of the next stage for, for Toronto. So then how much runway do we have to see this kind of rent growth? And, and just to you know, set the context, I've been having conversations with developers recently for projects that haven't even you know gotten the ground yet. So we're talking about completions, you know, four or five years down the road, and there, you know, we're talking about eight dollars per square foot, you know, more. Do you see that being uh, the likely outcome? Well, like I said earlier, the, the historical rate of rent growth in Toronto, if you average it over the last ten to fifteen years, about been about four or five percent a year. That's a, a bit higher than incomes, but pretty close to the growth in renter household income. So I think there's some constraints, definitely, to which rents can grow. They can't continue to grow by 20% every year because the population won't be able to afford it. They'll move out of the city and you'll start to see um, rents begin to level out or fall. But I, I do still think there's more runway room left. And again, that goes back to the, the economic composition of, of new immigrants that come in and also the deterioration in, in homeownership affordability and that greater proportion of people who would have otherwise been buying that are now renting. So you have a very large population of higher income earning renters and um, that supports higher rent levels, but to a degree, right? You can't see rents rise by 10 or 20% every what's, year. What's the ceiling? I think if we were looking at it over the next five years, I would project something around the 4 to 5% a year range, basically in line with what we've seen over the last 15 years or so. Right. So that works out to, if we have four bucks a foot today, adding, what's that, 20 cents a year? Is that You'd, you'd be closer out. to $5 a square foot. Yeah, I think the units are small. So $5 a square foot on 600 square feet is what, 3000 a month or so? Mm. It's, it's getting expensive. But again, 3000 over $100,000 income, that's 30%. And again, that's kind of where the net growth in renter households has been. Is there more room to grow at the top of the market where you're getting that renter profile with the larger incomes as opposed to older product paired with you know lower incomes? Yeah, actually... One of the uh, interesting stats that came through the census was that of renters that are earning over 100000 a year, 95% of them are paying less than 30% of their income in rent. And a lot of them are doing that because there's, there's no supply for them to move into, right? They're happy to stay put because the product just isn't there. On top of that, you have a generation of potential downsizers that in most cases would prefer to rent than to buy again, right? They can liquidate their current primary residence, help to fund their retirement, use those proceeds to actually pay rent or invest it into a dividend fund or something like that that can cover the rent, as opposed to going and buying a condo for a million bucks. There's a massive cohort of baby boomers that would prefer to rent. And again, there's just not a lot of product for them. And the product that does come out that is priced at $5 a square foot or $6 a square foot, and we're not talking about small units here, we're talking about 1,000 square foot units as opposed to 500 square foot units, and they're paying five dollars or $6,000 a month in rent, it's actually a pretty sizable market if it's in the right location. There's nobody to buy their $2.5 million home either right now. So those boomers are just stuck having to live in their 3,000 square foot houses in Kingsway. <laughs> yeah. 
So if you're investing money, you would put it into a new build right now, not not existing product. With rent controls? No. Yeah, new product. Just because, uh, yeah, there's a lot more upside. Well, let's talk about regulatory uh, yeah, issues. I mean, it's not necessarily a data issue. With this kind of rent growth, making the headlines that we referenced earlier, what do you see on the horizon for any regulatory changes that might uh, curtail some of the enthusiasm to drive NOI? Yeah, I'm concerned about the headlines that are going to be coming out soon about people who signed leases during COVID and are now seeing rent renewals come up in you know buildings that aren't rent controlled that are astronomical. And this leading to a lot of political motivation to extend rent control. Because I think rent control has some place in the marketplace, but not as strict as it is. I think, you know, it, it should be flexible enough to rise in line with, with property managers' costs and, and building owners' costs. And, you know, having it capped at one and a half or 2%, it's restrictive. It's very restrictive to new supply. And I think if you talk to a developer, one of their hesitations, biggest hesitations with bringing forth new supply is uncertainty as it relates to po- policy and, and regulation for rent control. So, yeah, I think the political will to extend rent control to all new builds. So just to sort of explain a bit more, anything built after November 2018 is not subject to rent control. Anything built pre-November 2018 is, I think is going to be there because there's going to be a greater pool of units in the marketplace that aren't regulated that are going to be seeing huge rent increases because the landlord is basically trying to market or mark their units to, to current market prices. And yeah, I mean, there's, you know, the stories of rent evictions and all of that, I think are, are going to be pretty widespread. Unfortunately, I, I don't think it's the right move because, like I said, rent control, the removal of rent control for new buildings has been a very effective policy tool in, in bringing forward new development proposals. We tracked the development applications for new purpose-built rentals, and we saw over 130% increase between when rent control was removed for new buildings in November 2018 to where we are right now. We now have a pipeline of over 100,000 purpose-built rental units that are in, in the planning stage. Now it's just a matter of getting them through the construction stage, right? They're there. There's a lot of pension fund money that wants to build rentals mm-hmm. everywhere in the GTA, not just downtown. But making the numbers work, even at today's rents, is very difficult, right? So if you think about the fact that rents are up about 12% or so from where they were pre-COVID, high-rise construction costs are up 42% from where they were pre-COVID. On top of that, you have higher, higher interest rates. You, you cannot make a project work anywhere in the GTA at less than $4 a square foot today, anywhere. And you probably need even higher than that. So there needs to be some sort of give on the cost side in order to uh, make sure that these projects move forward. I mean, anecdotally, we are hearing that. The costs are coming down, but they have a while to go before they impact. But to that point, though, I mean, I think that uh, you would not have that tough a time hitting $4 per square foot rents in most locations. I mean, if you start getting well off the beaten path, Maybe you're not, you're not hitting it there, but if you're in a downtown location, you're going to have no problem hitting those numbers. Well, for sure, yeah. yeah. And if I can defend landlords for for one second. Don't call um, them landlords. Uh, property managers. Property managers, yes, we are changing the terminology. Yeah. A lot of them now are doing uh, rent increase calculations for buildings that are not restricted based more on reputation risk than they are on just what will the market bear before snapping. So I know that is a part of the equation as, as well as property managers doing the responsible thing. No, that's true. And, and But take into consideration that most new rental supply built after November 2018 is private individual condo investors. They're not professional. Isn't that part of the challenge is that the vast, overwhelming majority of that ownership are these kind of individual mom and pop owners, not the sophisticated property owners that we think about when we th- talk about apartment buildings? Yeah, and it's a huge issue. I mean, we, we've relied on condo investors almost entirely to supply the GTA with new rentals. In fact, Condos have represented 90% of net new rental supply in the GTA over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. And, you know, it's worked out pretty well, right? Like I said, investors buy pre-sale, they hold their units at completion, 50% of the building goes directly into the rental market. 
eventually in time, these units will turn over and, and end up into the ownership market. But, you know, generally about 50% uh, initially go into the rental market. And that's helped to fill some of that void that's been left by the lack of, of purpose-built rental. But now what we're seeing is, is a much more precarious situation where investors may not hold to the extent that they have in the past, right? Every year we do an exercise where we look at the holding costs for an investor based on when they bought the unit, the pre-sale price, current interest rates, condo fees, and property taxes. And then we look at what the rent is being achieved on that unit. And every year when we do these calculations, it basically works out to about neutral cash flow, right? Rents are basically the same as the, as the ownership carrying costs. But moving forward with the prices that were paid for units that are in development today, combined with interest rates at you know, north of 4% or 5% when they come to completion, and rents that haven't kept pace with condo prices, the math just is not going to work, right? So are investors going to hold on to these units to the same extent as they have in the past? And if they don't, we're left with a massive supply void that needs to be picked up somewhere. So the fact that we were seeing more rental construction happening until this year, I thought was great, right? We could maybe start to offset some of those declines in, in secondary rental supply at some point in the future. But now the purpose-built rental is turning in the other direction. And like I said, condo rental supply might not be there to the same extent. Um, it paints a pretty bleak picture for where rental supply is going to be. Unfortunately, we're, we're almost at time, Sean. So I, and I wanted to give you a couple minutes to just talk about what you're kind of seeing crystal ball 2023, 2024, you had your October report. I guess the next one is, I'm assuming Q4. So December, you're, I'm sure filtering through that data now. Mm-hmm. We've talked about a lot of sort of heavier things. What are you seeing kind of in the next sort of 12, 18 months? Yeah, I think the market's actually more resilient than some of the statistics are, are suggesting. Like the real estate board statistics just came out for November today and showing that, you know, sales are at, at or close to a 20-year low. Prices are down about 7% year over year. But if you look at the trends on a month-to-month basis, sales have basically held steady since July. Prices have basically held steady since July. And this is as interest rates have continued to, to rise very quickly. So, you know, if we're getting closer to the end of this tightening cycle in terms of monetary policy, you would expect that there should be some alleviation in in that downward pressure on sales and, and prices as we move into the new year. At the same time, listings remain extremely low. Supply remains very, very low, and that's helping to support prices. So when you look at the sales new listings ratio today, it's at around 50%, which is comfortably balanced. It's supporting today's prices. I think the big question and variable for the market as we look towards 2023 is, is there going to be a big jump in people looking to sell their homes? Because there is a delayed impact between interest rates and their impact on the market. Not everybody renews right away. 70% of mortgages taken out over the last five years were fixed at less than 3%. So those are going to turn over in time and you're going to see more of those come into the market next year. But I think one of the comforting statistics is just how low mortgage arrears are in Ontario. Like it's 0.06%. In the early 90s, it was 10 times, 10 or even 15 times higher than what it is today. So even if we do see some distressed selling, some forced selling, I don't think it's going to be enough to tip the market into a prolonged downturn just based on how low supply is today and an expected improvement in sales activity as you know we get closer to the end of the, of the tightening cycle. And we're already starting to see fixed rates come down too, right? So that should help to alleviate some of that pressure. So as this happens, as the resale market starts to improve, we should expect to see new sale activity improve as well. It may be a little bit delayed, but I do expect that 2023 will look a lot better than the second half of 2022 in terms of sales activity, in terms of price, and in terms of new launch activity for uh, for condos. I think the rental market will start to slow down a bit. I think it's it's in high gear right now. I think it'll start to moderate. 
And that's typical for any economy that's entering into a slowdown, right? When you see the unemployment rate move higher, which is kind of what the Bank of Canada is expecting, right? They're orchestrating a slowdown in the economy by design. With that, you used to see a higher rate of unemployment. You won't see as much upward pressure on rents as you as you did in 2022. But there's enough demand out there for rental that I think you'll still see, see, see and not enough support. supply, not enough support. That yeah, not enough supply that you should, you'll you'll still see support there. So. It'll be a transitional year for sure. I don't think the spring of 2023 is going to look anything like the spring of 2019 or 2021 for that matter, for sure. But it'll certainly be, I think, an improve from where we were um, throughout uh, the second half of this year. Sean, last time we met was June 2020 and we were pretty bleak then in our conversation. So I wasn't sure how we were going to uh, fare today, but I feel better after hearing hearing your view in the market because it is data-driven and not just uh, pure gut because there's plenty of those opinions available as well. We are out of time. I want to thank First National for powering the podcast. Aaron, of course, is co-host. And Sean, third appearance. I'm looking forward to our fourth. Great. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.